Good morning. Are you for real? That's the question that Paul encourages us to ask ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. See if Jesus really lives in you. And over the past several weeks, we've been attempting to establish the spiritual criteria by which to answer that question. And we suggested that it falls into two categories, subjective evidence and objective evidence. There is evidence that is only apparent to me. That is subjective. It's the Spirit of God bearing witness with my spirit. You can't see that. Only I can see that. And then there is evidence that should be apparent to everybody. That's objective. And we want to look again this morning at that objective evidence. We said there are three features, three concrete, tangible things that should be obvious in the life of everyone who has genuine saving faith. Number one is a repentant spirit. Now we often confuse repentance with sorrow or regret. But repentance is far more than sorrow, and it's far more than regret. Judas felt regret, but he didn't repent. The rich young ruler went away from Jesus very sad, but he didn't repent. You see, repentance goes hand in hand with sorrow, but it's more than sorrow. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, we're told that there is a sorrow according to the will of God that produces repentance. There is a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance, but that sorrow is not repentance. Repentance is a turning from sin. Repentance is an abandoning of my previous lifestyle. Repentance is a 180-degree turn away from sin to Jesus Christ. And repentance is inseparable. It is an inseparable part or component of the gospel. Jesus preached it. First word of his sermons in his early ministry was what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Peter preached it. On the day of Pentecost, he finished his message, and the people said, what shall we do? And what was his first word? Repent. Paul preached it. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 20, he said, if I can read it, repent and turn to God. And repentance is the heart's desire of God. Because the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.9 that God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. And so apart from repentance, there is no salvation. Now the cool thing about repentance is that the deeper you are in sin, 
the easier it is to repent. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 21, 31. He said, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you do. Now he's talking to the Jews. In fact, he's talking to the Pharisees who were all about religion and all about keeping the law. And he said the outright sinners are going to get into the kingdom before you. Why? Because they recognize their sin and they're willing to repent. The depth of your sin, the extent of your sin, the measure of your sin will never keep you out of heaven. Because if you repent, Jesus paid on the cross for everything you ever did. But you know what will keep you out of heaven? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will keep you out of heaven because self-righteousness says, I'm good enough and I don't need to repent. And that's why repentance is a necessary part of the gospel because I have to lay it all down. Not only just my sin, but also my good works, my righteousness, what I think I'm trusting in. I have to lay it all down at the feet of Jesus to come to him. Even my pride, which is really at the root of self-righteousness. And when I repent, guess what? It's obvious because I make a 180-degree turnaround, and that should be obvious, not just in my life, but it should be obvious as you look at my life as well. And then the second component is a surrendered will. I love that old hymn by Isaac Watts, At the Cross. He says, it's at the cross where I first saw the light. And when you come to Jesus, you come to the cross. And a couple things happen at the cross. One of them is positional. When I come to the cross, I am identified with Jesus Christ in such a way that when he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he rose, I rose. Now, a lot of us stop there. We like that. Jesus died for me. But not only did something happen positionally, but something also happened practically. And in Romans 6, 6, it says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. You know what happened when I come to the cross? The old me dies. So at Calvary, there was a death, Jesus. At your salvation, there is a death. And guess who it is? It's you. We love to say, Jesus died for me. But at salvation, guess what we should be saying? I died for Jesus. I am laying down my life for Him. I am taking up my cross daily and following Him. And that's why it's not inconsistent in the presentation of the gospel for Jesus to say you have to count the cost in Luke chapter 14. Jesus says you can't be my disciple unless you give me all your affections. You can't be my disciple unless you give me your entire life. You can't be my disciple unless you give me all your possessions. What's he saying? You have to surrender your will to me to come to me. That's why we hear Paul saying in Philippians 3, 7, 
after talking about all the wonderful things he did as a Pharisee, all the great things he did, and all the things that people applauded him for and said, if getting to heaven is done by works, you're going to be at the front of the line. And Paul says this, Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Undoubtedly, the ultimate paradox of Scripture is this. Listen carefully. Although salvation is a free gift, yet it will cost you everything. Did you get that? Though salvation is a free gift, it will cost you everything. You see, eternal life is a free gift. It's a gift of God. Salvation cannot be attained by good deeds. It cannot be purchased with money. It cannot be earned in any way, shape, or form. It has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. It has already been bought at the cross of Calvary. But that does not mean that there's not a cost for you. You see, salvation is both free and costly. And in a sense, you pay the ultimate price. That's why Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Who's he talking about? Look in the context. He's talking about you. You are that grain of wheat. If you hang on to your life and keep it and don't go into the ground and die you will end up with nothing. If you go into the ground and die, you bear much fruit. What's he talking about? Death to self. Laying down your life. Laying down your self-will. In Luke 9.24, Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. How do you save your life? You lose it for Jesus' sake. You surrender it to him. John chapter 12 and verse 25, Jesus says, He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. It's a tough statement. You have to hate your life in order to keep it. What is Jesus saying? Salvation is a free gift, but it costs you everything. In his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, John MacArthur describes the transaction this way. He says, it is an exchange of all that we are for all that Christ is. That's the call of the gospel. It is wholehearted devotion. It is all-out loyalty. It is complete self-denial. I place myself, my time, my earthly possessions, my talents, my everything at Jesus' feet. And that's what he requires. And Jesus never asks you to do more than he's already done. He gave his life for you. And he's simply saying, I want you to respond in kind by giving your broken, sinful life up for me. And when you do that, it's obvious. Because the objective 
evidence of a true believer is a surrendered will. And that's implicit in the Scriptures. In fact, look at John chapter 3 with me. And I want to take you through some Scriptures and show you how this is consistent in the response to the Gospel. John chapter 3, this is a favorite passage of ours. We love verse 16. Most people have memorized that one. Usually the first verse you memorize. But I want to show you the last verse in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now there are two possible responses to Jesus. There is the one who believes and the one who does not obey. Now what does that imply? The one who believes obeys. The word obey comes from two Greek words. One is akuo, which is a word you know. It's our word for acoustics. It means to listen. And the other is hupo, which means to get under. So this word means, and this verse means, I get under the authority of Jesus Christ the Son and I listen to what he has to say. I obey. Now look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. It says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Obedience is an inevitable manifestation of true faith. Turn over a few more pages to Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. And I'm going to show you several of these because I want you to see this is not an isolated incident in Scripture. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. You'll see it again. Verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There's only two kinds of slaves. You're one or the other. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. And the evidence that you have been freed from sin is, as he says in this passage, you have become obedient from the heart. Not outward obedience. Obedient from the heart 
to the teaching of God's Word. Romans chapter 10 and verse 16. However, they did not all obey, there's the same word, hupakuo. They did not all obey the gospel just as Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? Now notice, he uses the phrase to obey and to believe interchangeably in this passage. Which tells us that the one who believes does what? Obeys. Look at chapter 15 and verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Chapter 16 and verse 26. But now is manifest. He's talking about the mystery, which is the gospel. It's now manifest by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. It's been made known to all the nations, leading to what? Obedience of faith. And then for sake of time, look over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And then Hebrews chapter 5 for a final verse. Hebrews 5, 9. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. If you are a true believer, it will be reflected in the fact that you have surrendered your will to Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you will obey perfectly. In fact, let me show you a couple other verses. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's something we, that word perfecting means completing. It's it's a process that we go through in life. We put off the old, we put on the new. It's something that goes on. We never reach that fulfillment. We never complete that in this lifetime. Look at one other verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Your faith is incomplete. Your obedience is incomplete. It's a process you go through now. I think we all feel like the man who said to Jesus, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. But you see, the thing that will mark you if you have genuine saving faith is that you will have a will that's surrendered to Jesus Christ. 
you will have a desire to obey him. You will have a longing to obey him. And if I say I have faith and I don't have a yearning to obey Jesus Christ, that's not faith. That is unbelief. Because genuine saving faith is evidenced by a surrendered will. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Let me just preface this by saying, I'm not having the most fun I've ever had preaching through this series. I'd much rather be talking about love, joy, peace, things that are real wonderful. But this is the truth of God's Word. And if we're not faithful to the truth of God's Word, then what are we? What are we doing here? If we're going to examine ourselves, we have to examine ourselves in light of what the Scripture says. And I'll be honest with you, the Scripture says some tough things. Jesus said some very difficult things. In fact, in John chapter 6, he said such difficult things that it says many of his disciples weren't walking with him anymore. They couldn't handle what he was saying. So if we can't handle the truth, who said that in a movie? Then we need to examine ourselves and see if our faith is genuine. Matthew chapter 18, verse 2. And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is trying to illustrate, how do you get in the kingdom? And he brings a little child and has that child stand in front of the disciples. And he says, you've got to become like this little child. Now what's a child like? child is humble because everybody's bigger than him. He's basically the most humble person on the pecking order that there is. So a child reflects humility. A child is also very trusting. Have you noticed this? I love to talk to my, I don't know if he's four now or three-year-old grandson, because he's one of the few people that actually listen to everything I say. I can tell him anything. And he goes, really? In fact, I have to be careful because I can mislead him. He's just so trusting that whatever I tell him, he believes. So he's humble. He's trusting. He's also submissive to authority. I say, we're going to get in the car and go here. Okay. No, there isn't a big battle over that. What are we doing next? Okay. Now, sometimes children don't obey, but they know that they are under the authority of their parents, and they know that when they disobey, they're going to get what? Discipline. How do we become a child? How do we enter the kingdom of God like a child? We humble ourselves before Jesus Christ. We believe everything He says. And we submit to his authority. See, a lot of us say we want to get in the kingdom, but we want to hang on to our rights of adulthood. 
Say, I want to do things my way. I want to be the boss. And Jesus says, you can't enter that way. You've got to lay down your rights. You've got to surrender your will. And what I'm saying to you is, when you surrender that will and become like a child, it's going to be obvious to people around you. Look at John chapter 10. We'll just look at illustrations until I run out of time. John chapter 10. Verse 26. Jesus is speaking to the Jews. And He says, but you do not believe because you are not of My sheep. And then He describes what His sheep are like. Verse 28. 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. How do you recognize a true sheep of Jesus? He listens to Jesus' voice and he follows Jesus. Now, why can Jesus say that? Because true sheep follow Jesus. If you're a true sheep of Jesus, it's going to be evidenced by the fact that you have a surrendered will that says where Jesus goes, that's where I want to go. Look at Matthew chapter 7. This will be the last passage. But we'll stay here for a little bit. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Jesus says there are two gates and there are two roads and there are two destinations. I want you to notice something. The gate to destruction is wide. You can enter it with all your baggage. You can carry everything you've got through that gate because it's wide. You probably don't even notice going through it. It's so wide. don't even know you entered it because you're on it. But it's wide. Bring whatever you want. In contrast, the gate to life is narrow. You've got to squeeze through it, which means what? You've got to let go of some things. Got to put your baggage down to fit through the narrow door. You can't bring your baggage. You can't bring your sin. You can't bring, bring the things you're depending on. You can't bring your self will and walk through this door. It's narrow. You've got to lay down your life as you come through that narrow door. As Jesus said, you've got to lay down your affections and yourself and your possessions and everything to come through. 
And of course, Jesus is the door. Secondly, notice that the wide gate opens up into a broad road. Plenty of latitude. There's no curbs, no lanes. You can meander all over the place on the broad road. There's room for religious people on the broad road. There's room for decadent people on the broad road. It's a broad road. You can meander and meander and meander. In contrast, the narrow gate leads to a narrow road. It's precise. It's restrictive. There's no room for deviation. It's a hard road to stay on. You have to be careful as you walk on the narrow road. And then notice, thirdly, the choice one makes between the two gates and the two ways is an eternal choice. The broad road that starts out so easy ends up very hard because it ends up in hell. And the narrow road that is difficult and challenging and hard at the beginning ends up wonderful because it leads you to heaven, to eternal life. And Jesus says there are two groups. On the broad road, there are many people And on the narrow road, there are few. One of the best quotes I ever heard, which is so true, is this. When it comes to spiritual things, the majority is always wrong. The narrow road has few people on it. So if you're going to follow the crowd, you're going the wrong direction. You have to follow Jesus. And he went down a narrow road all the way to the cross. Now, what I want to show you is this. Sometimes we, we study these two verses out of context. Because I want to show you the context here. If you slide down in the passage, Jesus is still talking. And you get to verses 21 to 23, he's describing the end of the road. And notice what he says in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord Lord, there's the many again that are on the broad road. And that day is what day? It's the day of judgment. This is the end of the road that he's talking about. This many, when they get to the end of the road, are going to say to the Lord, 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 which tells you what about the many? Most of them are religious people. Most of them are pretty orthodox. They're going to say, Lord, Lord. They're going to be religious people who think they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But in reality, they don't. You see, the sign over the wide gate doesn't say highway to hell. The sign over the wide gate says heaven any way you want it. Heaven with no strings attached. Just meander and meander and somehow you'll get there. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. What's the proof? That I said the right words? No. The proof is that you do the will of the Father. Surrendered will. Like Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you say that? That word Lord means you're in charge. Why would you call me Lord? You don't do what I say. You see, to call him Lord and not submit to him is the equivalent of Judas' kiss. It's hypocrisy. Then look at verse 22 again. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name performed many miracles? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, the proof of salvation is not preaching. And it's not prophesying. And it's not casting out demons and it's not performing miracles. Balaam preached his donkey was more spiritual than him. Caiaphas, the wicked high priest, prophesied. In Acts chapter 19, the wicked sons of Sceva cast out demons. The magicians in Egypt performed miracles. Didn't prove anything. What is the proof? Jesus says, you practice lawlessness. The proof is, you do the will of the Father. So the proof of your salvation is not what you say, no matter how orthodox the words may be. And it's not the role you play in the religious economy, no matter how pious you may seem. The proof of salvation is simply seen in doing God's will. It is a surrendered will to Jesus Christ. And in case you didn't get it, slide down a little more in the passage because Jesus gives us another analogy in verses 24 to 27. This is a familiar one. Two guys decide to build a house. One builds on the sand, the other on the rock. Both experience a tremendous rain and flood. The house on the rock stands, the house on the... What did I say? Did I get that right? That's amazing. (laughs) The house on the rock stands, the house on the sand... I was trying to remember the song, that's why I didn't say it right. I'm trying to remember the song we learned as a kid, but I can't remember it. But the, but the house on the sand went, okay. I don't remember the song. So you got two houses. He says the guy who built on the rock is wise. The guy who built on the sand is a foolish person. Now, how do you apply that? Well, when you're in Sunday school and you sing the song and you have the lesson, you say, well, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're wise, and if you don't believe in Jesus, you're a fool. Is that what Jesus says? 
Look at the passage again. What's the message? Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is wise. In contrast, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is foolish. So Jesus says it's about doing the will of the Father. It's about a surrendered will. If you're wise, you build on the rock by doing what the rock says. If you are foolish, then you reject what the rock says and you are building your life, doing your life on the sand. And you will be wiped out. Both men heard the words of Christ. Only one obeyed. He's the one who does the will of the Father. He's the one who enters through the narrow gate. He's the one who has genuine saving faith. Because when you have genuine saving faith, it will be evidenced by a surrendered Tough words. Tough words. We're going to take communion today. We're going to reflect back on the cross and rejoice in the fact that Jesus died for us. I'm going to challenge you today to not only say, thank you, Jesus, that you died for me, but to say, Jesus, I'm dying for you. I'm surrendering my life. I'm picking up my cross, the instrument of death, and I'm carrying it for you today. I'm letting go of me. I'm surrendering my will to you. In light of the cross, if you really understand the cross, how could you do anything less than that? Jesus gave his all for you. He gave everything for you. He shed his blood for you to give you eternal life. And the only reasonable response to that, it's not a payment. It's an act of praise. To say, Lord, I'm giving you everything I've got. It's not much. In fact, it's not even repairable because you have to make me a new person. You have to resurrect me from death. That's why it requires death. You can't patch it up and give it to him. It needs to die so that he makes something altogether new out of you. And the Bible says we have to do that on a daily basis because even though we may have done it once, guess what? We're prone to selfishness and we grab it back. And so as we get ready for communion today, and as you say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, my challenge to you is to say to him, I'm dying for you. I'm taking my cross today. And I'm going to surrender my will to your will and let you live it through me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for this simple remembrance service, this this physical example of bread and a cup that Jesus told us to do. To do in remembrance of him. And Lord, as we remember his body and his blood shed for us, 
pray that you would draw our hearts out, not only in thankfulness, but in surrender today to say, Lord Jesus, if you were willing to do all of that for me, then I'm giving all of me to you. Let's say that in genuine honesty and sincerity today as we prepare our hearts to take communion. And we will thank you, Father, for the fact that that is your work in us by your Spirit. We pray that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.